Welcome to the world of unsexy. From scrap metal to timber, estate planning to freight pooling, this show is a meandering exploration of just how sexy unsexy industries can be. I'm your host, Elaine Zelby, investor at SignalFire and eternally curious human being. In this podcast, we'll peel back the layers of niche and esoteric markets, understanding the history and looking at the future through the eyes of the pioneering entrepreneurs willing to bring technology and exponential improvements to these often overlooked spaces. Join me on a fascinating journey into the unsexy. Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining us today. My guest is Rima Madavoisian, founder and CEO of Nearspace Labs, providing timely wide-scale imagery from the stratosphere at down-to-earth prices. Essentially, they send high-tech balloons called SWIFTs into the stratosphere between 60,000 and 85,000 feet, capturing a whopping 400 to 700 square kilometers of imagery every flight. Rima, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a pleasure. Well, Rima, this is definitely a non-traditional space. So can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you got interested in both space and also imagery? Yeah, absolutely. I guess my background is also not quite traditional. So I'm coming from a small country in Eastern Europe called Armenia. We didn't have a space program because satellites are very expensive and space in general is expensive. And But I, I was always fascinated by aerospace and astronomy. Uh, in fact, my grand grandparents uh, were amateur astronomers and I would wake up at night and see them stargazing. So that kind of, you know, sparked the interest towards the field uh, from my early childhood, from teen, teenage years, I started coding, um, did a degree in applied mathematics and control, so essentially moving more and more towards robotics, um, and um, ended up uh, in Moscow doing research and working for the Russian Academy of Sciences about, I want to say, eight years ago, um, and when I was in Moscow, I was like, okay, this is, I guess, uh, you know, a great point in my life to make my move towards aerospace. And so I did. I joined a PhD program uh, where I actually met my co-founder, Ignasi, um, and we were we were essentially working on designing large uh, satellite constellations for observing the Earth. Wow. And that's kind of how we got into this problem space of, you know, uh, getting high-resolution timed imagery from space uh, to Earth. Wow, that's crazy. I also, growing up, wanted to be an astronaut. I actually started studying aerospace engineering in college, but switched to mechanical. I think when I realized that there wasn't really, the human lifespan was too short to do any real exploration in space, got Mm -hmm. a little bit depressed and um, wanted to build things. But I love that story. That's pretty amazing. Can you actually define what is the stratosphere versus what is outer space versus all those definitions around kind of levels of uh, geospatial depth? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So essentially, the traditional way of getting imagery from air and space is mostly, well, we started with airplanes way back, uh, like 100 years ago. No, in fact, let me step back. Actually, we started, there was this researcher in France, and I'm probably going into like a geeky rabbit hole about imagery, but like hell, let's do awesome. it. Do it. Um, there was a, there was this researcher and a photographer artist uh, in in France back in the day. He was the contemporary of Jules 
like Vernon, etc. I don't remember his name, which is very bad. But he essentially he had this dream of taking pictures from a balloon, but like the ones that would fly humans, like this um, hydrogen-filled gigantic balloons. So the first aerial imagery actually came from a person flying on a balloon. <laughs> Uh, not super high, of course, um, and and there's this beautiful Paris picture um, that that he took. Uh, years passed after that because, like, doing that with hydrogen balloons on humans is obviously very complicated. Uh, so then we started taking pictures with airplanes. Um, again, with airplanes, uh, what what happens is that while well, the carbon footprint is very big, right? If you are trying to capture a very large area with an airplane. Um, and flying back and forth, back and forth for kilometers, uh, you're really producing a lot of carbon footprint. And then, um, you know, it's just it just ends up being very expensive. And then years after after that, we started launching satellites, right? And uh, the Landsat kind of introduced uh, remote sensing and imagery from space. Now, the issue with satellites is that uh, satellite imagery is either high resolution or frequent. If you want frequent and high resolution imagery from satellites, it's almost not possible because the cost of it is so, so high that, you know, you cannot have any, um, any kind of uh, sensible return on investment anytime soon. Like, mm-hmm. um, so you either have companies like Planet providing very useful, frequently updated pictures of the, of the earth, but they are very low res, right? So a couple of meters, or you have like Moxar, who is another satellite company that provides high resolution imagery, but they have a few satellites, so it's very low frequency. So this is kind of where the, in general, the, uh, the space is right now and where the stratosphere is uh, to, the, to the important part, I guess. So the stratosphere is kind of in between, right? So uh, it ranges from 60,000 feet altitudes to 100,000 feet altitude um, range. Uh, there, the air is actually closer to Mars than Earth, uh, so it's pretty cold. Wow. Uh, the air density is pretty low uh, in that area, um, and, and the winds are very. The winds are much calmer than in lower altitudes. That allows for, um, you know. With clever robots, as we built, that are called Swift, uh, th- that allows for, you know, a very beneficial environment for capturing imagery of the Earth. Um, and that area of space also allows you to get imagery that is high resolution, like an airplane imagery will be, um, and high frequency, like essentially nobody else. And in terms of scale, because we have this nice vantage point. In terms of scale, we come closer to actually satellites than any aerial provider. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. It's interesting to hear you talk about the trade-offs of resolution versus frequency. I guess my, my, my gut would tell me that there are certain use cases or customer segments that would care about one or the other a lot more. And this allows right. you to probably tap into all of them. Who, who cares more about the frequency versus who cares more about the resolution? Yeah, so we actually mostly focus on urbanized areas for natural, like naturally, those are environments that change much faster. Um, and then uh, you care 
you know, the, the frequency becomes very important. I just want to say that we were also, for a long time, we were trying to bucket customers uniquely, like either that or either in a bucket of either they care about resolution or frequency. But the truth is that a very large group of companies um, really care and, and government agencies and NGOs care about the combination of not only resolution with frequency, but also the cost. Uh, because technically, technically, you could say, I can task this 400 million three-ton satellite to, to give me weekly imagery of Austin, but it's going to cost you a lot, like uh, millions and millions per picture, right? Wow. So, and there are a bunch of companies uh, in, especially in our cities uh, that care about imagery and frequent imagery and imagery that provides them with high insight, um, uh, but at an affordable price. Because currently the, the situation, uh, the, the situation in the industry was that, you know, if the, the keys to this very valuable data that drives a lot of decision making around how we live in our cities and, and how we travel, what air do we breathe, what water do we drink, etc. All those decisions that a lot of agencies and companies were making were based on, you know, on, on data that was kind of kept from most of us. Um, and our goal with Near Space Labs is, democratize, is democratizing access to this very high quality um, and high divided data set. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I have no concept for what affordable means in this industry. So can you talk a little bit about what the price points are for using something like a low Earth orbit satellite, like a you know geosynchronous satellite, an airplane versus something like a Swift? Yeah, actually, I can openly uh, discuss our pricing and it is published on our website. Believe it or not, actually, in geospatial industry and imagery industry, this was an unheard of step that we took, like mm-hmm. having transparent available like publicly available pricing as a software as a service company would you know so um for in general compared with other sources our imagery ends up being from two to five five times cheaper usually for our customers so that's that's how we compare Wow, that's a significant difference Um, definitely kind of goes to your point of democratizing access to this type of imagery Absolutely. Yeah. Can we switch gears and talk a little bit about how it works? So talk to me about what goes into building one of these essentially, you know, fancy machine balloons, and then how do you actually deploy it? Yeah, um, that's, that's the, that's one of the most exciting parts uh, about our business. So we, uh, we have a proprietary device, the Swift, uh, that is essentially a sophisticated robot that takes pictures of the earth, right? So, um, it is very small, fits in a small box that you can ship to any location in the country and in the planet. Um, and a team of two people uh, is able to operate uh, the Swift. So essentially what happens, uh, there you attach the Swift to a helium balloon uh, and, and launch the balloon. The balloon flies, uh, you know, and takes pictures. Uh, now, there is also... Uh, a lot of research and um, kind of proprietary algorithms that we have that are uh, that plan 
uh, the flights um, and simulate the flights, and then we and, and then comes the part of kind of execution and operations. Mm-hmm. And how much of the Earth can they capture from sixty thousand feet? Yeah, so we actually. Uh, we we made some improvements, and I think we need to update our website. So per flight today, we are uh, able to capture about 1,500 kilometers square. Um, for reference, and my numbers may be wrong on this one, I may be but um, a bit off, um, but it ends up being about 10 Bay Areas for wow. like reference. So yeah. <laughs> per flight. Yeah. So that that's kind of the secret of being super affordable. Uh, we are getting very high resolution data um, and a lot of it per flight. And what happens? So you send the balloon up. It takes images. I guess how many images is it able to take? And then how long is it up for? And then is it reusable? Is it something like the SpaceX where it can redock somewhere? Or is it every time you, you fly a balloon, it's gone? No, no, no. So essentially, it, it it's kind of like SpaceX. It's it's really funny. It's kind of like space, SpaceX. It come comes back and redocks itself. So uh, one unit, one Swift, uh, is able to serve us for years on. Um, and uh, yeah. Wow. And um, when it's up, how how long is it up for? And what type of it? How many images is it able to take at once? Um. So the volumes of images. Um, I don't want to mislead you, so I can I can check that with with the team and and let you know. But essentially, it covers this area that I mentioned, um, and per flight it ends up being I think about four hundred gigabytes of imagery. Um, so that's kind of in terms of the volume. Uh, what was the other question? Oh, hours of flight. Um, hours of flight. Uh, right now, it's about four to five hours. Um, and we're working to increase that by adding solar cells uh, to the SWIFT for, for it to fly longer. And what type of technology does it use to redock itself? I guess this is a very ignorant question, but my guess is that because of the Earth moving plus the winds at that high of an altitude, it would be near impossible to have it come back to the same place. Yeah, so the secret there is that um, it's it's for us, it's a combination of a sophisticated simulation software that we use before the flight, uh, and essentially guidance algorithms that we have on the Swift. Uh, so proprietary guidance algorithms, uh, it's hardware software combination that allows us to do that. Um, it's very similar actually to how SpaceX is flapping these little wings and kind of controlling where they land. Uh, it's it's kind of similar to like the idea is similar to that I would say. A bit. Very cool. That is very very cool. And so right now it sounds like you as near space labs are deploying the, them each time. Do you anticipate at some point that your customers will actually be deploying them themselves and launching uh, launching the Swifts? Yeah. So we we started the company as an imagery company, and we always um, kind of thought that we will be operating our hardware ourselves and delivering the imagery. Now we didn't have like a customer case where the customer asked us uh, to actually buy the hardware and operate the hardware themselves just yet. Um, I don't, you know, maybe there are such customers out there uh, and they, and if they want to do that, we're open to discussion, but 
we we were always meant to be an imagery company, a seamless, transparent imagery service for our customers. We just plug into our API and 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 get this plethora of data and information uh, like within minutes uh, at your desktop. So, is your vision uh, at some point to essentially have bases set up? that covers the entire earth at all times so that you can, you know, have one hub that is sending up the swift yeah. at whatever the normal frequency that you need to do, uh, but you have full earth coverage. Yes, uh, exactly. Um, so essentially centralizing a few hubs uh, all across the planet and launching swifts that actually carry different kinds of sensors. Right now we do optical, but the vision is also to move to thermal and hyperspectral um, that would already allow us to monitor methane emissions. It will allow us to uh, contribute to, to the challenges that the planet faces in terms of environmental risks and climate risks um, and all of that. Very cool. Today, are you capturing static images or are you capturing video? And is it controlled by somebody who's remotely deploying it essentially on the ground, or is it completely robotically controlled by the switch itself? So we are capturing stills. Um, the technology is able to capture video. Um, the parameters of that video would be different uh, than like the videos that they're used to seeing. Uh, but uh, there were a few customer requests that, that wanted video, but not too many. And in our company, we, we like to really create our technologies tailored to our customer needs so we don't over-engineer things, you know, because with aerospace and hardware, you can really go down rabbit holes that you don't want to, do what you don't want to go. We, we, are, we actually take a lot of pride in how flexible and nimble all our departments and engineering efforts are and efficiently serving the customer need. Um, what was the other part of the question? I forgot already. Um, oh, I was curious whether you have somebody remotely operating it on the ground or whether the, the machine itself is doing it. So the machine itself is doing it, um, most of it. We do have uh, a software that allows us to track the health uh, and uh, also like send commands if needed to the SWIFTs. But essentially, these are autonomous devices, right? So they're tasked to do a certain, like to map a certain area and you launch them and they just work on their own. So cool. Yeah, we, we also call them, we also give them names uh, and they, they, they kind of become this, they're pretty personalized in our company. It's, it's borderline weird, I guess, in, in some senses. Who gets to name each one? Is it whoever's operating it? Oh, we, we actually have, uh, we, we usually have um, voting in our Slack for names. Um, most, of, most of the names that we have right now are uh, after like explorers, like Tabay or Shackleton. Um, we had Earhart, etc. I love that. One of my favorite things is all the really nuanced rituals that companies create over time. Yeah. I think those, are the, those are the really important culture bonding uh, activities. That's really cool. Yeah. What are some of the non-intuitive use cases for for imagery like this? Yeah. So essentially, uh, I think some of the non-intuitive cases that came up. I don't know if they are non-intuitive, but I think in terms of like um, 
penetrating those industries, it was challenging because, the, you know, there was there is certain amount of education that needs to go there. For example, insurance is one. Um, InsurTech is on the rise and, and the need for good insurance uh, solutions is, is out there. Um, but, you know, in terms of the imagery use, um, there is a certain amount of education that needs to go into that industry. Um, I wasn't expecting to get traction with NGOs this early, uh, but for example, NGOs that work for conservation um, uh, and, and kind of environment, environment protection um, NGOs, uh, these are also like a customer group that seemingly would be hard to, to get like something signed with. Uh, we, we see a lot of traction and I think it shows uh, kind of this uh, area that we are carving for us where, you know, traditionally organizations that were skeptical about imagery, they see us and they understand that it's not this scary, you know, unaccessible thing. It's actually very easy to use and it is, um, you know, it is affordable uh, and flexible. So I think that allows us to get uh like traction in industries that weren't traditionally using imagery. Does that make sense? Yeah. Can you walk me through the insurance use case? So what is an insurance company doing with this imagery and how is it using that to make decisions? Yeah. So with insurance companies, there are kind of, it's kind of twofold, I would say. So part of it is around premiums assessment. So Essentially, you know, with our imagery, insurance companies are able to see all kinds of parameters about buildings. Um, so they would see how big the building is, what is the roof made of, how big is the roof, is there a pool, etc. About like dozens of parameters that they look into before they write a premium. Uh, that's one case. And an interesting fact, again, kind of stressing here is that with our imagery, they are able to see kind of the forest and the tree, right? So they see, they're able to zoom into a particular building, but it, it has the scale that they can see all their um, kind of portfolio within one image. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's in terms of premiums. In terms of claims, if you have um, essentially frequently captured data about the building, uh, if you get a claim, you can actually resort to the latest information about that building and 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 check what actually happened to the to the building, and these would help not only in um, you know in, in normal day to day operations, but also after disasters like after a wildfire or a flood, um, companies will be able to quickly get access to valuable information. That is actually what. A very big issue for insurance companies because it is estimated that the that the insurance industry loses about thirty billion a year on like post disaster claims. Wow. Uh, so so that that you know that that use case is very interesting and we are pushing hard for it. And you know not not to mention that flying after a disaster uh, is is useful not only to insurance companies. Uh, this data is useful to uh, local governments, uh, it is useful to disaster responders, et cetera, et cetera. And people who have any kind of operations on the ground, essentially helping to rebuild cities and, um, and towns. 
Yeah, I can imagine that in a lot of those use cases you just described, comparing the imagery against paper records is probably going to be incredibly important for risk analysis and things like that. That's that's fascinating. How much of the imagery are you analyzing and providing any kind of data or tagging or insights onto versus is that something your customers do? Meaning you're just a provider via your API of the images and they can do with it what they want. Uh, we are we are we're providing just the imagery through our API today. Um, we do have, depending on how sophisticated the customer is, uh, we do have partners that we can work with uh, for analytics and kind of provide a joint solution for now. That, that's how it works. Are you seeing some of the industries that you work with have dedicated teams and experts on their side who really understand how to leverage these types of images? Uh, I see a lot of teams uh, and experts. Um, sometimes, you know, some of them would already be actively using uh, data. Some of them would be in active search for new kinds of sources uh, and new kinds of partnerships. So it's really different um, from case to case, uh, which means that, you know, there is no one solution that rules them all. Um and there is a lot of room of exploration together with the customer on like exciting new things that we can be doing. Um, so it's it's very interesting. Hmm. What's the hardest part of building one of these balloons? What's the hardest part of building the balloons? You mean technology-wise? However you want to interpret it. <laughs> that's a that's a great question. Um, I think we got pretty good at building those, so I'm having a hard time kind of answering that question. I think what was interesting for us uh, and I'm really proud of our team is that innovation in aerospace and anything that flies is so slow. Yes. And that was something that as researchers, we were really frustrated about. And that's something that as a company, I'm proud to say that we had incredibly fast kind of innovation cycles in the team. Um, and as our CTO would joke, we are the software of hardware uh, in a sense. Um, and I think, you know, in the beginning, especially uh, kind of getting through like test flights and having things fail and, and having to face issues and new challenges. That was the complicated part. Um, and, you know, um, yeah, right right now, I think uh, we kind of have processes in, in place uh, that we follow and build. I think the challenge that we are facing right now is actually scaling operations on flights, a number of flights more than building and manufacturing. Is uh, what you're doing regulated at all by whether it's the FAA or any other government entity? Yes. Yeah. So we actively work with the FAA. Uh, we also, um, through the FAA, we collaborate and coordinate our flights with air traffic controllers. Um, we usually get this fancy code names like Alfa Romeo, something, something. Um, and yeah, yeah, so we work with, with the FAA. Uh, and air traffic controllers. What is the frequency right now uh, that you guys are sending the balloons up? 
Um, so right now the frequency is monthly, uh, and we are gradually going to increase it to uh, up to multiple times a day for certain areas. That's so fun. Do you guys have kind of like a space launch where when you're sending it up, everyone's watching and getting all excited? I can imagine that would just be a, such a fun thing to kind of be a part of. Yeah, I wish we have kind of the time to broadcast everything. Right now we are, we are uh, yeah, we are just focused on the launch, but certainly we were thinking, we did a few very nice launches from like schools where, you know, uh, kids could, attend and, and see what's happening. Or some of our investors and customers were able to bring families for a launch, you know? So we kind of do like a close circle um, launch event, uh, I would say. Uh, but we were thinking to like open it up even for like broader public to come and check it out. Um, so these are things that we certainly want to do. And you'll be one of the first to know. Sign me up. It's a, it's such a neat way to get more people inspired to be building things like this and to get more, you know, especially seeing a female CEO building an aerospace company, you know, getting more women in STEM and technology. I think it's fantastic. Absolutely. Representation is very important. Absolutely. Well, this has been phenomenally interesting. The last question I always like to ask people is, has there been a piece of advice you've been given in your life or your career that really sticks with you and are just words that you live by? Um, the fact that there's nothing that I cannot achieve if I, you know, I can achieve anything that I put my mind to. Um, I think that that's really something that kind of stuck with me. And my mom was always, um, my mom was the one kind of to, that was pushing me on cheers to that and keep keep pushing and keep shooting for mars go beyond the moon <laughs> absolutely Rima, where can people learn more about you and near space labs so people can follow us on twitter uh it's at near space labs uh our handle is uh, our website is nearspacelabs.com we have a lot of information there we have customer cases there for our customers uh, across industries to come and check out um, and please apply to our open positions. We have a robotic positions up, robotics position open, a DevOps position open, and probably a few others that I'm forgetting about. Um, so those are kind of the two main channels. And on Instagram, of course, for imagery. Same, New oh, Space Labs. perfect. <laughs> Amazing. Well, Rima, thank you so much for coming on today. And everybody, definitely check out Near Space Labs on all the channels. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.